Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Bonnie Badenoch, who will explore the myth of self-regulation. This week's episode is the first in a two-part series with Ms. Badenoch, so be sure to tune in next week for part two. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. I'm thrilled to be back again for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And today, we are going to be speaking with Bonnie Badenoch, and I promise it will not disappoint. Uh, just a little bit about Bonnie. She is a in-the-trenches therapist, supervisor, consultant, teacher, and author who has spent the last decade integrating discoveries of neuroscience into the art of therapy. And she has a book, uh, several books that can, have, have come out. One is Being a Brain-Wise Therapist, A Practical Guide to Interpersonal Neurobiology. That was published in 2008. And it is part of the prestigious Norton Interpersonal Neurobiology series. You have a book in that series and it's a pretty big deal. Uh, she's also written the Brain Savvy Therapist Workbook, and that came out in 2011. And it seems that so many people are feeling that she has such a gift of bridging the gap between science and actual clinical practice and doing our work with compassion and heart. Um, she teaches um, several immersion programs, like year-long types of programs. We will have her uh, speak about that uh, a little bit uh, when she joins us today. And she's also uh, worked and been in study groups with Dan Siegel, Alan Shore, and really uh, some of the biggest name folks in neuroscience and attachment-based work, uh, as well as um, interpersonal neurobiology. So I am so happy that she agreed to join us today. Okay, well, uh, so today we have Dr. Bonnie Badnock. So I am so excited to have you here with us and um, would really like if you could give um, the listeners a little uh, information about your background because I, I know from reading and listening to some other things that this is a second career for you what, what you're doing now right yeah. yeah yeah and at this point it's about a 30 year old career but I, uh, I, was a, I was a college professor for quite a long while and uh, also a trauma survivor for my whole life and so as I began in my mid-40s, late 40s, to get some really deep healing experience, I left that career and became a marriage and family therapist so that I could hopefully provide some of that same kind of support for others. Mm -hmm. for sure. mm -hmm. So that's how I got into this in the first place. And then in, so that was about 1991 when I graduated and was, you know, fully operational in some way as a therapist, although hopefully we grow every day through the yes. clients share mostly as what I find my best teachers have certainly been the people that come, you know, as they yeah. share their words with me. 
But then in 2003, I, I, I went to the attachment conference at UCLA and heard Dan Siegel speak for the first time. Mm-hmm. Hair stood up on the back of my neck and it's like, he's telling us why it is that this longer term, deep kind of attachment work heals people. And it was so beautiful then to be able to go back to the agency that we had and share this with our interns and find we understood the neuroscience, their anxiety, which we all have as new therapists, right? We don't know if we're going to be any good at sitting with people when we begin. So we're anxious. And I just watched their anxiety decrease as they, as they developed a deeper understanding, as I was developing a deeper understanding about why it is that the, the work we do of being present is so powerful for people. So I feel like I've been very fortunate. I was in study group with Dan for five years, and out of that came the first book, being a brain-wise therapist, and then the workbook, and then, again, again, as my own healing has just progressed through the decades, uh, the last book, Heart of Trauma, really grows out of my experience of some very deep healing experiences that I had in my mid-60s, and wanting to share that along with what I was experiencing with my clients, so that brings us today and uh, these days we love doing long year-long immersion programs in Vancouver Washington for therapists but also for interested others that really lets us deepen over the course of a year into some some really deep felt sense understanding Uh of of interpersonal neurobiology and relational neuroscience so and are those just uh, to clarify for our listeners and we can recap at the end also how people could find out more about that, but are those online or in person? Or well, they're in person because with interpersonal neurobiology, I understand. The interpersonal needs to take the lead. So people come for three days, four times in the year, and then in between have a listening partner who they communicate with. And most of that is often online because people come from all over. So mm-hmm or Skype or something like that and speaking with each other, hopefully weekly to maintain and deepen that thread in between the times we're together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, it sounds amazing um, to be able to go through that program. I've heard good things about it and that people have really benefited from it. So um, I'm glad that you're sharing about it. Uh, so as I was, as I mentioned before we started here today, I have so many ideas of what, what to talk about. You're writing about so many things, polyvagal theory, you know, your own experience. Um, but there was, uh, one topic that, that you had written about that grabbed me and it was, um, the, the myth of self-regulation. And because I work with a lot of parents and children, you know, I feel like, you know, one of our big goals all the time is, you know, the child can self-regulate, the child can eventually self-regulate. Um, and so that title really caught my eye uh, because of that. So could you um, kind of unpack a little bit about that, 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 that line and, and what you're thinking was behind the information you wrote about that? Yeah, I would. I would love to because, um, in a way, that <laughs> that title is it can be kind of shocking because it sounds like self-regulation isn't possible. But I think we misunderstand often what it really is. So I have to back up a, a little bit, Karen, to talk about this, and that is we live in a society that is very left hemisphere based. 
meaning that it's about goals, it's about behaviors, and but most tragically of all, it's about self-reliance. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the idea of self-regulation becomes one where we feel like this is the goal. And somehow, we become this, this. We have this all these capacities within ourselves, without much connection to the outside, others in the in our circle necessarily, as though as though there's some like almost moral good in it that we self-regulate and we don't need to depend on others. Um, fortunately, that is beginning to break down some, and I'm really grateful for that, and I think relational neuroscience is helping us with that. But as our society as a whole, and here I'm drawing on a man named Ian McGilchrist's work, who I couldn't recommend highly enough about the two hemispheres of the brain, as our society has become more focused on the left and goals and behaviors and all of this kind of thing, the tragedy of that is, is when we are focused in just the left hemisphere primarily, there's no felt sense of we. There's no sense of others as living beings. We, we can think of others as they are good for this or good for that, or but we don't have a felt sense of the connection because the circuitry isn't there in the left hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a society that's more based on that, naturally there's going to be an emphasis on self-regulation because at a very deep level, we don't believe there really is anybody else who will help us. And that, to me, is a great tragedy. And I think it's amplified by the way we use our devices, you know, and all of these kinds of things, that there is, uh, there's been a growing sense of separation and not really belonging to each other. But now we're beginning to sense how bad that is for us. And so there's maybe a movement back toward the importance of real deep connection with one another. So here's what the neuroscience tells us about this as far as the myth of self-regulation. When we're born, we don't have any regulatory circuitry at all. It's the, the components are there, but they are like so many things in our system. They only come together and become functional through relationship, you know, warm, connected, attaching relationship, the components of which seem to be in some way have to do with our capacity to really see another person and reflect them. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I love what Alan Shore says about that um, right brain, uh, the parent to the child, uh, the right brain's downloading in a conversation of limbic systems. I think that's such an interesting, fascinating way to say that, what you're talking about. Right. And it is, it's a right hemisphere to right hemisphere connection in which we're truly seeing the child as best we can within our human frailty and then reflecting what we see to that child like, oh, you look like you're having a lovely time there. Oh, oh you look sad right now. But always with the opening that we will, Edtronic's work tells us about 33% of the time we'll get it right on the first try. Always, the, good, always good news that it's not 100%. <laughs> close to 100 (laughs) percent with our kids but also with our friends and with clients and with whoever we're with you know with a bank teller for that matter you know just in general in the world but if we notice that there's a myth and we come back to repair that rupture that's really the foundation of security and healing and i know if a friend if i say some friend says something to me and they notice that i'm having a reaction to it and they pause and they go like, what just happened? I, I think maybe I hurt your feelings or whatever. And we have that conversation. Those to me are deeper, really good moments than even the connections. There's a way that the humility to acknowledge 
But first we have to be able to see that there's been a rupture before we can make a repair. And that's when we talk about really being truly present to someone so that we're right. sensing when there's when something has happened. And again, with yeah. children, spouses, with everybody. You right. Know? And, you know, uh, the humility to say that. And then I was also thinking the other side for the person to be feeling so seen and yeah. that you pick that up from me. Right. And even if I ultimately can't quite get where you're coming from, the fact that I make the effort and that it matters to me is very healing. And that those kinds of interactions, whether they're with our babies who give us the feedback, you know, I, my baby's crying and I offer my breast and that doesn't seem to do it. And then I check her diaper and that doesn't quite seem to do it. And then I just hold her and walk with her and maybe that calms her. Even at that early age, there's this sense that you're trying to come to me and I be valuable and all of that. And that kind of relationship is what builds the neural circuitry that we call self-regulation. But the other process that most people don't talk about is in, in the process of, of creating that circuitry, that isn't all that's happening. We're also internalizing that person. Mm -hmm. Your neurons and resonance circuitry, which are immature but there when we're born and develop more strongly over time up to, you know, we, by the time of two or three, a child can have a very thorough and comforting internalization of another person, maybe earlier than that for some kids, but it takes a while to build that. But that process of internalization means that we're always in relationship with somebody inside when we feel regulated. Mm -hmm about having not only the circuitry and then we go off by ourselves but those people live on within us forever and just the thought if a child's upset at school and if they draw their their mind back to their mom or their dad or whoever it is they feel deeply connected to there's a tremendous calming effect in bringing that person into our awareness mm -hmm. when they're not in our awareness they're helping us behind the scenes you know Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, that's why I say self-regulation is always a myth because we, there's no way we can develop really good circuitry of regulation without internalizing people and going down the road with others inside in this very rich internal life. Yeah, and I think that um, both with parents and children and, and with couples, you know, if we don't have those internal pictures or internal representations, it we somehow have to find them because we need to draw on them to have intimate relationships. And I know, you know, just for example, often with parents that I'm working with um, who didn't really have that in their background and we're asking them to be this for their child. And sometimes I think, you know, we're, we're at, we may as well be speaking a foreign language because mm -hmm. they're not getting what that means. Oh, I can't feel it. You know, if we can't feel that inside, if I don't have those people in me yes. to reference inside, I, it is a foreign language, certainly at the level of feeling. And it makes it very hard to offer that to somebody else in any kind of consistent way. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, just drawing on ideas that are mainly in the left hemisphere and they don't have any of that juicy right hemisphere connection to mm -hmm. them. While that's better than nothing, certainly it's better that a parent's thinking about speaking kindly and trying to do that. Mm -hmm. But coming from the heart, it isn't really building the, their child's neural circuitry or providing that internalization of this warmth. Um, yeah. A person I met with for a long time, and she said, 
and, she, and this will happen in any good therapeutic relationship. She said, it's like I have a warm Franklin stove in my chest. Oh, that's, that's so nice. I love that. All of our warm relationships become are this place of warmth and comfort inside that, again, we're drawing on even when we're not conscious of it. But when we can bring these people to conscious mind, our whole body will flood with this feeling of safety, which is mm-hmm important as well as a sense of our own value and a sense mm-hmm. of life it's a pretty important thing to <laughs> to imagine and those of us who had almost none of that as children can still have it by by coming into relationship with others that are with us deeply and guide us through our healing process which is really my story i mean my my warm internalizations i have a fifth grade teacher in there that's really powerful but most of my warm really warm relations are from adulthood you know middle age and beyond Mm -hmm. and i'm so grateful for that it's changed my life entirely to have that that reservoir inside as well as building my own circuitry but that reservoir of connections means everything to me Yes, and so um, if we did not have early on in our um, infancy and toddlerhood secure attachment relationships and some of what that that gives us, we can get that later in life, you know? Yes, yes. and, and um, the encouraging part of brain science is that brain plasticity is lasting longer than than we originally thought you know so it's great to hear you talk about that I think it's um we we can keep healing you know that, that, that it, there's not at any time it's like well you know there's you know that, that's it you know you you reached your 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 point of of healing you can't go any further or whatever and, you know, I'm also, as you've been talking, you know, this myth of um, self-regulation um, and thinking of Bowlby's quote, which I think of all the time, but particularly from the cradle to the grave, we need a safe haven and a secure base. Yes. And I think that's sort of a little bit another way of saying like this across the lifespan, we need this. Um, and it, and um, we just won't do well alone (laughs) well they say the in old age the effects of loneliness are 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 harder on us than the than the combination of smoking eating poorly obesity lack of exercise not that those others aren't important they are very very important but you could do all of those things well and if you're by yourself the effects are just as harmful for the body the mind the spirit as those other things, you know, that we think about, you know, more about how about lifestyle kinds of factors. So it's very important. I'm reading Lou Cozzolino, who's a good friend and all of that, one of the one of the real founders of interpersonal neurobiology, he's studied aging a lot. And what the discoveries are showing us is that the social circuitry in the brain way outlasts the cognitive circuitry. That even people who are losing their cognitions, their social circuitry, their need for relationship remains very strong. And that it's really important that we understand that, that somebody may not know my name, but they will recognize me in a deep way if they're connected, if we're connected. And that it provides, it, it provides a very rich sense of life to be able to relate in that way. 
But we're so focused on cognition and all of that in this left hemisphere kind of based society that we think as cognition goes, the person is actually disappearing and it's really not true. Yeah. So it's too brave, absolutely. Yeah, I have a... Um, in utero to grave, we know. Yes, yeah, that's true. That's true. Exactly. That's, that's a good point. Um, I have a colleague that we worked together a long time in the Midwest, and she moved to California and is uh, running a nursing home and a memory care unit from an attachment-based perspective, mm -hmm. using a lot of play, using a lot of connection, and, you know, just that the impact that it is having on the older people there is just so beautiful to watch. And, you know, I guess one thing that I was thinking about when you're talking is one of the people there said, Oh, now I know so many people before I only knew the people at my lunch table because they're doing this in like groups. And I think sometimes we don't realize like, if you can't really get around a lot, like how isolating, you know, that is to just know the people at your lunch table, you know, even though there's all these other people around you. And I was just like, so eye opening for me. And I think too, the idea that it's not just having people around you. It's like interacting in a certain way, right? Yes. Yes. Again, this, this sense of, of uh, I, I think just to share a really quick story, because yeah. this was, close to some some ways Barbara Friedrichsen talks about love I remember this day probably and I remember it so clearly and it must have been 40 years ago driving down the street I stopped at a stoplight and I happened to glance over to a woman who was standing on the corner and we had some kind of profoundly deep eye contact for the length of that stoplight and to this day 40 years from there I can feel the human goodness in that it made wow. in me, and I and I've had those experiences now regularly with the homeless people that I try to stop and talk with a little bit. This eye-to-eye -eye depth contact, this sense of recognition of human to human, even those little brief contacts mean so much to our inner world. It's like an acknowledgement of what matters most to us is this sense of connection. So, so from an interpersonal neurobiology perspective. What would you say is happening right then in those powerful moments of meeting? Well, I think what, what, what we know is, is Steve Porges says, he's the, the autonomic nervous system guy, polyvagal theory. He says, connection is a biological imperative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's an important statement. It's not optional. Right. You know, someone is open from their heart, and I literally their heart brain, not just talking about some you know, emotional heart, but we have a brain in our heart. And when we're connected to that, what comes, what Steve would say is the heart and the eyes are connected to each other. And when the, we're coming uh, the, from, what is it, the obicularis something? I'm thinking yeah, never remember all the big words. Isn't it? And he shows those pictures of eyes of animals and humans. And anyway, I got excited about that, but continue. <laughs> And that when that heart connection is there and we meet another person, there's a kind of merging and taking in of that and also a respect and an acknowledgement of our common humanity that I think fills us with a sense of meaning that's so important. And, yeah. and 
in parts of Africa, the greeting when two people meet each other on the road is, I see you. And the other person says, I am here. And their sense is, is that I am most alive and most here when you see me. And I think that's what's happening and that there's that intuitive awareness in that, in that way of meeting on the road. It isn't just words that are said, but there's the real felt sense of there's something comes alive and present in me when you truly see me and that it's beyond what my state status is in the world. It's beyond anything. It's that recognition of our common humanity. Mm -hmm. Why do we need it? And this is one reason that being on computers so much, although we can see each other's eyes right now, which is lovely and much better than for me than if we just had voice, you know, especially because I've not met you before. So your voice isn't familiar to me, to your whole person to bring you to me so I can see you, which is lovely. So there's, there's a way that this eye to eye, heart to heart connection literally feeds us in ways that's more important than food in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really, really remarkable. And Harlow saw that. Yes. Even with the, the the monkeys, that they the ability to cuddle with something was more important than the food. <laughs> um, yeah. The rest of that Harlow research was that those monkeys that were cuddling with the warm, blankety mothers kind of thing also didn't do well till they got back with their real mothers. Mm -hmm. They did better. They had a preference for the cuddling. Mm -hmm. they, needed. they needed the eye-to-eye -eye contact. They needed the movement of the body. They needed the heartbeat. They needed all of that to really come fully into themselves. So there's a, there's a, a fullness of relationship that we can experience, whether we're babies or 90-year-old you know, people, that comes through this kind of moments of intimate contact. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This week's episode is the first in a two-part series, so you'll want to be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed today's broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to theknowledgecenteratchadock.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.